Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hands in his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. The doors were shut, but Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. This is the word of the Lord. Imagine there's a, a number of you that have seen the movie Shrek. Uh, maybe if you haven't seen it, many of you are at least familiar with it. It's an animated movie that came out in 2001. And it took the idea of a typical fairy tale and just turned it on its head. Instead of having uh, an ending like Beauty and the Beast where the beast and Belle fall in love, and that love transforms the beast into a handsome prince, and then they marry and live happily ever after. The title character, the, the hero of this film, is a big, green, rude ogre named Shrek. And he rescues and falls in love with a princess, who in turn falls in love with him. But at the end of the movie... It's the princess who ends up becoming an ogre, and then they marry and live happily ever after. Now, about two-thirds of the way through the movie, you hear the song played Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen that you just heard, and at first glance, it seems to be an odd choice. I mean, right off the bat, this song, Hallelujah, the title is made up of two Hebrew words, Allelu and Yah. It means, hallelujah, means praises or honor or glory to, and then Yah is part of the awistic holy name of God. And so this song, praise and glory be to God, how does that fit with a cartoon movie about an ogre, a donkey, and a princess? And yet when you watch the movie and you hear it, it really blends very well. I know that this movie Shrek has some kind of irreverent humor, and yet I think that the theme of it is really charming, that you don't have to have a perfect life and be beautiful and handsome to be able to find love. We know that that doesn't happen that often, if ever. Lives aren't perfect. They're messed up. And I love the notion that the things that society would look down on as imperfect or unattractive, there can be great beauty within them. 
And when you look at that and compare it to this song, Hallelujah, which is about, it reflects the man coming before God and the struggles and the brokenness in his life, then they seem to match very, very well. This morning, I want to continue our sermon series, Music That Changed the World. We've been looking at different music genres. We've been looking at different musicians and composers. We've looked at specific songs. Last Sunday, we celebrated the 20th anniversary of Life Light here at St. Luke's, and we were looking at the effect of contemporary worship music. Specifically, Dr. Long looked at the song, I Can Only Imagine by Mercy Me. This morning, I want to look at the song, Hallelujah, by Leonard Cohen. Now, he wrote the song in 1984 and published it in 1984 on his album. He had actually spent years writing this this song, but he published it in 1984. And when it went before the head of CBS Records here in the United States, the president of CBS Records said that the song was a catastrophe. It was a disaster, and he would never release it in the United States. Well, of course, it got here anyway, and has gone to be a worldwide hit. In fact, there are over 300 recorded versions of the song. It's been used in movies, on television shows. It's been used on So You Think You Can Dance, in The X Factor, in the Olympics for ice skaters to skate to. It is something that has transcended so many different areas. In the United Kingdom, in 2008, it set history because Leonard Cohen's version was on the top charts at number 36, and two different versions were at the number one and two spots on the charts. It has an incredible appeal across different uh, backgrounds and traditions. And Leonard Cohen has often reflected on how many people have asked him, okay, what does it mean? And there's a wide variety of responses. I think it's interesting to hear how many people from across the spectrum think it's about this or this. Some people have felt that it had too many religious references, and so they would take those out when they recorded their version. Some didn't think it had enough, and so they would add more in. Some thought it was about God, and some didn't. And so, is it a religious song or not? Is it religious, sacred, or is it secular? I think one of the things that defines religious and sacred versus secular is our own point of view. It's based on what we're thinking or doing or saying. For example, if we're in church, it's religious. If we're thinking about God or talking about God to somebody, that's religious. If we're at work or watching a movie or watching a football game, that's secular. We have neatly divided our lives into two categories, the religious and the secular. And yet, is God divided? We profess that God is present at all times. And so really, while we may like to divide into religious and secular times of life, God is present throughout all of them. And so even the ordinary secular moments become sacred because God is present. 
This morning's scripture passage comes from the Gospel of John, and it takes place after the resurrection. We celebrated Easter Sunday just two weeks ago, but this takes place in the days immediately after the resurrection. And the disciples had seen the risen Lord. They had seen him, and so they proclaimed to Thomas, one of the other disciples, who had not been there when Jesus appeared, they said, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas very famously says, unless I see Jesus and place my hands on the wounds in his side and in his hands, I will not believe. Eight days later, Jesus appears to Thomas, and Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, you have seen and believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And because of this one passage, forever we have branded Thomas as doubting Thomas, and we have used his doubt as a way to kind of feel good about ourselves because we think we have, we're the ones that Jesus is referring to, those who have believed even when we have not seen. And yet I think we've really missed some of the heart of this passage. Because if you If you look at the fact, of course, Thomas did doubt. He struggled. He worried. He doubted that Jesus had risen from the dead. But in the end, he was able to stand before the Lord and cry out, my Lord and my God. One of the strongest professions of faith in the New Testament. There are three things I want to discuss this morning that can help us in the midst of our doubts, our worries, our anger, our fear, to be able to stand before the Lord and cry out hallelujah. First, is to know that it's natural to doubt. It's natural to have questions. After all, who of us can fully understand the Lord? Who of us can truly grasp the God of all creation? How can we really know all there is to know about God? And so we have questions, we're seeking, we're trying to grow in our faith. And so questions and doubt are a natural part of that journey of growing in our faith. It's not something that is ridiculed or looked down on. In this song, I think that Leonard Cohen really captures a hint of it, of what that looks like in the first verse. He says, Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing hallelujah. In an interview, Cohen would say that he wrote the song because he wanted to push hallelujah deep into the secular world into the ordinary world. And I think he beautifully captures that hallelujah, the honor and glory to God belongs in all of our moments. They're not divided into religious and secular. All of the moments belong to God because God is present. I think sometimes we can struggle with this because we don't fully understand or know the Lord. We're trying to, But sometimes we feel inadequate, even in our own misunderstanding. 
When I was in seminary, I was driving back and forth to Perkins School of Theology. It was on the SMU campus in Dallas. And we lived in Colbert. It's in southeastern Oklahoma. And I pastored two small churches there, one in Colbert and the other in Calera. Now, near the church in Calera, there was a group home for people who had mental uh, difficulties. And one young man from the group home would sometimes come to our worship services. He was about 21, 22 years of age, and yet he had the mental age of probably a five- or six-year-old child. He was nonverbal, but he was very friendly and kind, and he seemed to always understand the flow of worship, and he was very expressive in his his emotions, and you could understand, even though he didn't communicate with words, you understood what he was saying with his uh, facial expressions and his motions. Well, I was in seminary at the time, and I was taking classes specifically for worship. I was learning what worship was about and what is holy for worship, what kind of things to do and say, and what kind of songs to choose. I was learning how to lead worship. Now, On one particular occasion, this man came to worship, and he brought a doll with him. Now, it wasn't a typical doll. It was kind of a black felt stuffed thing in the shape of a gingerbread man, and on the front of it was an embroidered skeleton. Now, I had a problem with that because... I hadn't had any specific references to that in seminary, but I was pretty sure that skeleton dolls were just not appropriate for a worship service. But I understood that he didn't fully grasp that, and so I didn't really think too much about it until he came forward for communion. Now, I had no problem serving him communion. It's interesting to note that throughout the time of church history, there have been occasions and different faith traditions that have restricted communion to those who really had a better understanding and grasp of the Holy Sacrament. But I was part of the United Methodist Church, and the way that we understand communion is that it is a grace moment that God meets us where we are in our brokenness, in our humanness, in our doubts and struggles, Even when we don't fully understand, God is present to meet us there. And so I had no problem serving him communion, but he brought his doll with him. And after I had served him communion, he made motions to let me know that he wanted me to serve his doll as well. Now, in that instant, I had so many thoughts going through my mind, and they all seemed to revolve around the fact that despite all of my seminary education at that point, I had known long before seminary that serving an inanimate object, the bread and the, the juice was wrong on every front. And so while I'm wrestling with the theology of this situation, it was almost like Christ's grace broke through my thoughts. And I found myself taking a piece of bread and putting it to the mouth, or the skull, of his doll. And all of a sudden, he just lit up, and he beamed. And I could feel God's presence in that moment. 
Later on, when I was reflecting on it, I felt that Christ had been there for both this young man and myself in a very special way. This young man did not fully grasp how Christ imparts himself in the bread and the juice, and yet the grace of Christ was there for him nonetheless. And I had overconfidence in my understanding of the grace of Christ, almost to a legalistic degree, and yet the grace of Christ was there for me nonetheless. We can come to God with our doubts, with our lack of understanding, with our worries and fears, with our questions, and the grace of Christ is there to meet us. Second, it's important to know that Christ is in the midst of our brokenness. There's a verse in the song, actually, Leonard Cohen wrote over 80 different verses to this song. But one of the ones he wrote, you say I took the name in vain. I didn't even know the name. But if I did, well, really, what's it to you? There's a blaze of light in every word. It doesn't matter which you heard, the holy or the broken hallelujah. I mentioned earlier that I think that we've been way too harsh on the disciple Thomas. We've judged him to be doubting and somebody lacking faith. And yet, if you really look at this chapter in John, we are missing some of the point. It starts off with the resurrection. The women run to the tomb, and they see the empty tomb. They see the angels, and then Jesus appears to them. They run to tell the disciples, and they exclaim, We have seen the Lord. And the disciples didn't believe. They gathered that night out of fear. They were worried about their own lives, so they gathered together. Thomas wasn't with them at this point, but Jesus appeared in their midst. And the scripture says, Jesus showed them the wound in his side and in his hands. And it says, And then they believed. They had to see, and then they believed. And so when Thomas arrives, they tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas says, unless I see the Lord and the wounds in his hands and in his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, Jesus appears to Thomas and shows him his side and shows him his hands. And Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. Now this is the strongest profession of faith in the Gospel of John. In fact, it is a marker. It's the high point of the end of the Gospel because it's part of the theme. The Gospel of John in chapter 1 starts off with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it ends with this proclamation from Thomas, my Lord and my God. These serve as the bookends for this theme that Jesus Christ is human and divine. He is God incarnate. And so here is this incredible proclamation, and we miss it because we're too focused on the fact that he doubted. But all the disciples doubted. None of the disciples believed until they saw Christ. And so when Christ appears to Thomas... He's just repeating what the other disciples. He believes after he's seen just 
as they did. If we ridicule him as doubting Thomas, they're the doubting disciples as well. Now, we also hear in the words of Jesus, I think something taken out of context. When Jesus shows his wounds to Thomas, here's the wounds in my side and my hands, and he says, do not be faithless, be believing. We hear almost this sense of scorn that he's ridiculing Thomas for his lack of belief. I think he's comforting him. Remember, the disciples had hoped and believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And then they saw this brutal crucifixion and their hopes were dashed. They're grieving their friend who they loved. And now they're fearful for their lives. When Jesus appears first to the disciples and then to Thomas and shows them the wounds, he's doing so to comfort them. It's almost as if to say, the story, the good news that you heard that you thought was too good to be true is true. Why would we look down on that? It doesn't seem at all that Jesus did. He's comforting them. And then at the end, when Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God, Jesus replies, you have believed because you have seen. Blessed are those who believe even though they haven't seen. Now, we take this almost with a sense of pride because we are those people, right? We have believed, and yet we have not seen. And yet this is kind of a misconstrual of what's going on. In the early church, for the first believers to come along after the disciples, after the resurrection and the ascension, when they came along, they could not believe that their experience with Christ would ever be as good as the one that the disciples had with Jesus. After all, they had seen Jesus. They had been with Jesus. And so how could it be that they could have Jesus in their midst like the disciples did? Surely the disciples were blessed far more than they would be. The focus was not on the strength of their faith, but on the presence of Christ. And this is good news for us. It means that despite our doubts and worries and fears, despite our imperfect lives, that's not what determines the presence of God for us. It's not the strength of our faith, but rather the strength of God's love that determines God's presence. Leonard Cohen really understood this. You know, he was born into a Jewish family in Canada in 1934. Both sets of his grandparents had immigrated to Canada from Europe uh, due to anti-Semitism, and they had raised him with a strong connection to the synagogue. He understood all of his life that he was Jewish. The name Cohen means priest. He understood that he was a descendant of the priestly tribe. All of his life, he explored different ways of spirituality, so he could enhance that connection to God. But he always had these deep turmoils and struggles. From an early age, he struggled with depression. He battled addictions to alcohol and drugs. He would suffer from anxiety, so much so that before some of his concerts, he would go out and he would be shaking so much that sometimes in the middle of a song... He would just stop, apologize to the audience, and walk off. He was so overcome by his anxiety and insecurities. 
And yet he knew that even in this brokenness of his life, even this was to be brought before the Lord. He would write in another one of his songs, Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Christ comes to us in our brokenness, because of our brokenness. And it's in the cracks and because of the cracks in our lives that the light of God can shine through. Cohen would go on to write and and talk about in an interview that hallelujah is a Hebrew word which means glory and praise to the Lord. The song explains that many types of hallelujahs exist. All the holy and broken hallelujahs have equal value. I desire to affirm my faith in life, not in some formal religious way, but with enthusiasm, with emotion. It's not the strength of our faith, but rather the strength of God's love that determines God's presence in life. And third, we can stand before the Lord. There are moments in life that it seems that all we can do is come before God. I find it very encouraging that Thomas, in the midst of his struggles and doubt and grief, still showed up. He didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, and yet he still met with the disciples. He showed up, and because he was there, because he came before the Lord, he was able to see the presence of Christ in an exceptional way. In our lives, we will face brokenness and questions and doubt and all things. And yet, if we will just show up, sometimes we will see God God's light shining through in an extra special way. When I was in my very first year of seminary, both of my grandparents passed away in the same week. Now, this was extremely hard on me. Uh, I know that there are more devastating losses that someone could experience in life, like the loss of a spouse or child, And that in the natural order of things, you expect to outlive your parents and certainly your grandparents. But this was really hard on me because they had been so formative in my upbringing. They had helped to raise me. And I think under and over all of that feeling was a sense of guilt because I had not seen them in a few years. They lived in Ohio, and we lived in Oklahoma, and I always had so many reasons of why I had to keep postponing a visit to see them. Life was so busy. Work was really busy. Um, I was entering the candidacy program for ministry, and so that was busy. I got pregnant and had a baby. That was busy. I, uh, when I entered into seminary, I was commuting back and forth to Dallas. Hannah was eight years old, and Brooks was just one year old. And and so life was just really, really busy. In October of that year, I received word that my grandfather had become very ill and passed away. And that night, I called my grandmother, and I told her how sorry I was for her and how sad I was. And I told her that we wouldn't be able to make my grandfather's funeral 
because it was the middle of the semester and it was just too busy at school. And so I said, we're going to wait until the end of the semester in December and that way we'll come and it'll be much better that way. We'll have a longer time to visit. And I told her I loved her and we hung up the phone and a couple days later, on the night of my grandfather's funeral, she had a massive stroke. And we were told that she would not be able to survive it and probably would only be able to uh, live another day or so. And so we packed up the car as soon as possible. We started heading and driving out toward Ohio. And I began what was almost a, a frantic prayer to God. I just asked God over and over, begging God, please let her live just long enough that I can be with her one more time. Um, I knew that she wouldn't survive. I just needed a a little more time with her. And and yet, sometime when we were crossing across Missouri and headed into Illinois, we received word that she had died. And I remember this flood of emotions. I was so sad and distraught now at having lost both of my grandparents. And I was angry. I was really angry with God because I thought... I hadn't asked for a big miracle here. I just needed a little time. But I think in ways that I didn't even realize, I had so much anger and guilt for myself that I had yet again put off another visit. And yet, in the midst of all of those emotions and all of that brokenness and anger toward God, I distinctly remember God beckoning me to just pray and offer it all. And so I did. I was very honest, and I poured it all out in my prayers to God. And I remember in the midst of my anger and sadness and guilt, feeling comforted by the presence of God. And it was a huge, important moment in my life because I realized that no matter what we experience, the doubts, the struggle, the anger, we can come before the Lord And we can pray our honest prayers, and God can be there with us. I think it's why I really connect with this verse of the song, and it says, I did my best. It wasn't much. I couldn't feel, so I tried to touch. I've told the truth. I didn't come to fool you. And even though it all went wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. I encourage you, in all the moments of your life, in the moments where you really understand, in the moments you don't feel like you're getting it, in the moments that you have succeeded, and in the moments you've failed, in the moments of joy and anger, where you're afraid or ashamed, in your holy or in your broken moments, come before the Lord and offer hallelujah. It's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.
Amen.